Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Ephesians chapter two. If you're new with us, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, at least that's what they tell me. And um, in fact, Pastor Spence, let me just get this out of the way. I love, love, love Pastor Spence, but he called me and uh, he said, man, I, I really want you to come and teach Ephesians 2, 11 uh, on, on through the end of the chapter. I'm going, mm, this sounds like a trick because that passage is on race. And um, you're going to be at the beach and you want a black person to talk to your congregation about race. Um, all right, I was born at night, but not last night. So um, uh, listen, I want you guys to just take it easy. Uh, I don't have an ax to grind. If I say anything to offend you, I'd love to get your emails. Email me at pastorspence at mercychurch.com. But seriously, this is, um, look, I'm, I, I, again, I don't, I don't have an ax to grind or any of this. I am excited to dive into the word with you. I um, but this is an angry black man time. Like I, um, I just moved to the Raleigh-Durham area from San Francisco Bay Area where we owned a house that we paid like, I don't know, one and a half billion dollars for. <laughs> Bought a house in Raleigh that we paid like, I don't know, seven bucks for. Um, so I'm not mad at all. Uh, in fact, some years ago, I, in fact, I, I used, to, uh, used to live in Ballantyne, early 2000s. I think my house then was like $2.00. And uh, I worked at um, Big Pink Church off Pineville Matthews Road. Unsaved people seriously used to call it the Pepto Palace and the Mary Kay Cathedral. Um, and um, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, one, one of the staff people there asked me, they happened to be white, they says, Brian, if you could live at any time, true story, if you could live at any time in world history, when would it be? I said, as a black man? Now. Like 1753 wasn't good for me, 1853 wasn't good for me. And so, yes, there's a lot of work that, that we need to do, um, but I'm incredibly hopeful. So uh, even though we're going to get into this passage, why are we talking about race? Because Paul, I'm going to show you, talks about race. And one of the things I love about Mercy Church is if it's in the Bible, we're going to talk about it. Um, and so, but this is not coming from any kind of, I don't have an agenda and I'm not trying to guilt anybody or any of that. Uh, guilt is a horrible change mechanism. The gospel is the best change mechanism there is. So I want to draw, I want to draw your attention definitely to that. Also, so good to just see some of your leaders, get some time with some of your leaders like Pastor Richard and, and others as well. It's going to be a good day. Plus my Georgia Bulldogs won yesterday. Um, the Atlanta Braves, yes, we're at 90 wins. We're going to win the World Series. I'm naming and claiming that. It's my prosperity theology for the day. Pick me up in verse one. The guy who wrote this, oh, wonderful. They've got a little timer on me. I've got 36 minutes and... 
Timer on a chocolate preacher is cruel and unusual punishment. Here we go. Verse one, guy who wrote this name is Paul. Paul says this, Ephesians two, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and I love this, we were by nature children of wrath. If I was preaching this text in the 90s, I would title the message, We Were Naughty by Nature. (laughs) Didn't know if that would work here. Like the rest of mankind. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I love this. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his, here's that word again, grace, in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And just in case we didn't get it the first time, he says it again in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his, I love this, we are his workmanship. Paul's originally writing in Greek. The Greek word for workmanship is a word that means, that is literally poema, from which we get the English word poem from. We're God's work of art. Your mom and daddy may not have planned on you being here. And one of the ways you know that is if your closest sibling is a decade older than you, You was a surprise. (laughs) But in the economy of God, there are no surprises. Poema. That's why Christians are joyfully on the front line fighting for the right to life. Those are poemas in the womb. Goes on to say, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's not done. Verse 11, therefore, don't need to spend a a day in seminary to figure this out. The therefore means that what I'm about to say is connected to what I just said. You with me? Therefore, remember that one time, not just you Gentiles, but you Gentiles in the flesh. The in the flesh part means he's talking about non-ethnic Jews, which means he's talking about race. Oh my goodness. Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, speaking of these Gentiles, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself, make note of this phrase, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The key word for all of Ephesians 2 is reconciliation, the bringing together of former enemies. First of all, verses 1 through 10, we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. 
wait a minute, some of you might be here, you might not call yourself a follower of Jesus, wait a minute, I'm already thrown off, you said God was angry with me and former enemy, I thought God loved me and how can God love me and be angry with me, how can those two things live in one person, bless your heart, you must not have kids. Because can't nobody tick you off like those precious little tax write-offs. In fact, therapists actually say, if you really want to know what you love, it's not seen in what you're not bothered by. Oftentimes, the indicator light to what you love is what angers you. The fact that God gets angry over our sin shows that he loves us. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul says, what, what's holding our, our ethnic unity together? It ain't CNN. It ain't Fox News. It ain't MSNBC. It ain't the Democrats. It ain't the Republicans. It's Christ. Holds this thing together. So, Father, would you just bless me? Would you both be with what I say and with how I say what I say? I come, Lord God, just wanting to give a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation. So I pray that the seed of your word, in fact, Lord God, that's that's the the, the text, the imagery, that Matthew 13 picture of the sower scattering seed. That's what I'm doing today. I'm just scattering the seed of your word. I pray that it falls on good ground, that it takes root, that it bears fruit. I hope that it's clear, it's plain, it's practical. As my grandmama would say, put shoe leather on your word. Show us how to walk in it. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So my parents are getting older. They're, they're in their 70s. In fact, I just talked to my, my mother yesterday and my mother, um, she's uh, got a bad case. I don't even know what this is, a bad case of bursitis. She's 73, and she tried to explain to me what it was. I'm like, Mom, how'd you get that? She goes, I think it was pickleball. Um, my 73-year-old mama is like pickleball like, and talks trash. Can you imagine that? 73-year-old woman just talking trash to you over some pickleball. Unbelievable. Um, so that's just kind of the stage of life I'm in. Um, I, I, for those of you who... Uh, who as adults, you know, we've got aging parents. There's a verse in the Bible that I just, I just think we all should just quote to our parents every time we see them. I quote this verse all the time uh, to my parents, especially my dad. Every time I see him, it's Proverbs 13, 22. If you, if you haven't memorized it, you should. I quote this to my parents all the time. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. <laughs> and then I always say to my dad, are you a good man? 
Are you a good man? The true story, man. Some time ago, we're sitting there at the Cheesecake Factory, north side of Atlanta, where my parents live. And um, I quote Proverbs 13, 22, a little bit tongue, tongue in cheek to him. And good man leaves inheritance to his children's children. Dad, are you a good man? And he, true story, responds, funny you should bring that up. I've just made some changes to the will. I'm like, ooh, now you've got my attention. Do tell. What changes have you made? He goes, well, it's interesting. Here we are, north side of Atlanta. Grew up in Georgia. He says, I sit down with my lawyer. My lawyer says, Dr. Loritz, I see you've got four kids, three biological, one adopted. I'm excited to go through this process of making some changes to your will. But before we get started, you should know that Georgia state law actually says that at any given point, you can edit out any of your you know, biological kids. You can get rid of them out of your will. But Georgia state law also stipulates at no given point can you ever edit out your adopted child. That child is secure. That's helpful for me as we come to the book of Ephesians, this towering book of theological nutrients. Paul, almost out the gate, he says that when, when you got saved by grace through faith, we were adopted into the family of God. Now, you, you'll forgive me, and I know I shouldn't, have, shouldn't think this way, but subconsciously for years I hear the word adoption, I think second-class citizenship. I think adoption is in terms of plan B. This is not what Paul means. In fact, Paul means the exact opposite. In fact, right on the heels of, of him writing that we were adopted into the family of God, he then says that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The idea of seal, it's an idiom from the first century world. It means two things. When the emperor would put his seal on something, it would authenticate it. It would, it, it would let you know this is the real deal. The idea that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, it, it authenticates us to the world. It's not when we act like the world and look like the world that that authenticates us. The fact that we've been saved by grace through faith, adopted into the family of God, and then given the Spirit who now lives inside of us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We we're sealed. The sealing of the Holy Spirit also communicates security. When the emperor would put his seal on something, often he'd put his seal on a tomb. It was his way of saying, this thing is secure. Or he'd give a piece of correspondence to a messenger to take someone and it would be closed up and he would put his seal on that. That thing was secure. It was not to be broken by anyone, but by the recipient. And so the fact that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit means we, we are secure. And I think this is a reminder that conservative evangelicals need to hear because oftentimes I think we forget that what gets us into the kingdom, grace, is the same Thing that keeps us in the kingdom, grace. In other words, you didn't work your way into it. You can't work your way out of it. Sealed. Adopted. What does the family of God look like? What does that look like? Well, I want to explore this with you, and I just love the fact that John says, here he is exiled on the island of Patmos. I looked up into heaven, and I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Think about that. John, how do you know on site, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, on site, that there are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, unless you're seeing differences in color? When we get our new glorified bodies, they will have ethnic distinction. 
Hopefully my new glorified body has a revved up metabolism to it. <laughs> but here's what I want you to see. Your whiteness, your Asianness, your Hispanicness, my blackness is not a fruit of the fall. Or, nor is it the result of a colorblind God. God didn't pull a Stevie Wonder when he made me. He made me, and a part of the, the image of God is he made me redemptively black. And as such, you know, I have black proclivities. I don't hike. Now, you might think, you know, I'm stereotyping. Here's the challenge. Watch the Discovery Channel for a week and tell me how many Tyrones or quiches you see <laughs> traipsing through the woods. Like, you want me to go up that mountain for what? And once I get up there, how am I going to get back? Like, that's fun for you? What is... hey, there's some certain news stories you know black people have nothing to do with. Man gets mauled by bear. When in your life have you ever seen a black man getting mauled? by a bear. Some of us remember the crocodile hunter. When he died, I'll let you in on a little insider talk. All my black friends said, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I might wear crocodiles. I ain't gonna wrestle crocodiles. We're different. And I know I'm stereotyped. We're different. We're different. We've been adopted into the family of God. So now we come to Ephesians chapter two and in order for you to see this powerful thing of race, and we're gonna kind of push against principalities and powers in the next few moments that we have together, but we can't get to that powerful thing of race until we first set it in its right theological context. In fact, before Paul gets to kind of horizontal reconciliation, he deals first and foremost in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 with vertical reconciliation. He talks about the beauty of the gospel, and, but before he gets to the beauty of the gospel, he deals with the ugliness of our sin. In the opening three verses, he just talks about the fact that prior to Christ, we were just woefully sinful. It's, it's almost like Paul understands you'll never appreciate the brilliance and the beauty of the diamond of the gospel without first putting it against the backdrop of your sin. I remember when I first met my wife at Mentorate Church, she had just gotten saved. I felt called of the Lord to be a part of her spiritual formation discipleship process. And um, so we started, you know, dating and falling in love with her. And, you know, then it's time to kind of, you know, uh, you know, just look for her engagement ring. The problem was I was a seminary student, which means I was, I was Poe, not poor, Poe. Couldn't afford the other O and the R. And so I would start... Uh, I was looking for jewelers who did layaway plans. I know I just lost Gen Z, maybe some millennials, layaway plans, Google it. Um, and so finally I found a jeweler and uh, I was talking to this jeweler about the kind of the specs of the diamonds I was looking for. And I just noticed that this jeweler, like every other jeweler, they didn't just take kind of those diamonds that I was talking about and plop them down on the counter. Now, you know how jewelers roll. The first thing they, they do is they take a, black piece of velvet cloth and they, 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 they put the diamonds on top of that. It's very intentional because the contrast makes the radiance of the brilliance of the diamonds pop. 
Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, he rolls out the black velvet cloth of our sin. Never get so sophisticated in your faith that you don't take periodic glances at the sin of your past. Paul did that. I'm the chief of all sinners. He didn't stare at it. He took a peek to appreciate what God saved him from. Then verse four, but God. Oh, if I was in a chocolate church. (laughs) Cue the Hammond B3 organ. But God. The depths of our sin, but God. Not just being merciful, Paul says, he is rich in mercy. God has more mercy than we have mess. In banking terms, God's mercy account will never show insufficient funds. But God, being rich in mercy, and then several times he says, for by grace you have been saved. I I love it. Mercy and grace are, are close, but they're not the same. Mercy in mathematical terms, it's subtraction. It's, it's the withholding. It's you not getting what you do deserve. Mercy in math, in, excuse me, grace in mathematical terms is the addition. If mercy is I'm not going to give you what you do deserve, grace is I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I, I love what one of my pastor friends says about grace. <laughs> Forgive the homeliness of his analogy. Grace means you didn't eat your dinner, but you still get dessert. You don't deserve it. He says, I want you to understand you, you weren't saved because of the house you grew up in. You weren't saved because of the church you attended. You weren't saved because of the amazing quiet time streak you're on. You weren't saved because of the letters behind your name. None of that stuff carries any weight in the kingdom of God. Friday nights at our home, uh, when our kids were, were there, it was game night in our house. And uh, one of our favorite games was Monopoly. Nothing gave me greater joy than to bankrupt my family. <laughs> Pure joy. I mean, to look at the end of a game of Monopoly, and I have all the houses and I have all the hotels and all the money and my kids have nothing. I'm like, that's an accurate description of your life. You have nothing. I've got it all. I'm sick and I'm demented. But you know what? At the end of Monopoly, you know what I've never done? I've never said, hold on, take the money, put an envelope, let me go to Bank of America and make a deposit. Because while Monopoly money has value within the kingdom of Monopoly, it carries no weight in the kingdom of this world. What school you graduated from? What your GPA was? what school your kids go to, what country club membership you're a part of, what zip code you belong to, what car you drive, the letters behind your name, where you work, how much money you make, that's monopoly money. Yeah. Carries value in this world. I'm not saying it's sinful. But by no means does that gain you an inch with our sovereign God. 
you are saved by grace through faith. And that is why racism is an insidious form of insanity. To boast in something that not only doesn't get you entrance into heaven, but you had no control over. In verse 11, therefore. He, he now moves from vertical reconciliation and he connects it to not just horizontal reconciliation, but racial reconciliation. What? All, all the data says that um, one of the challenges that conservative white evangelicals have is the data says it that for the most part conservative white evangelicals only see the gospel in vertical terms so when we and we heard this all the time during the pandemic when, when we want to talk about race let's just preach the gospel right? as if the gospel doesn't impact race Paul connects the two in Ephesians 2 if you were to ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, is the gospel vertical or is it horizontal? Jesus would go, yeah. They came to Jesus one day and they say, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, here you go, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, vertical. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, horizontal. He connects the two. Read the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, two sections. First section is verticals, how you relate to God. You shall have no other gods before me. Second section is how you relate to others. Don't commit adultery, don't, don't covet, vertical and horizontal. Read the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 18, an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. No way you can say I've been reconciled to God, have received his forgiveness, but the forgiveness of God just sits in a cul-de-sac and not a boulevard through you. Christian who holds a, holds a grudge is a contradiction in terms. Jesus is not saying forgive to get into heaven. In fact, he's saying one of the ways you know heaven has gotten into you is you forgive. See the vertical and horizontal? I've been forgiven, I forgive. I've been forgiven, I forgive. First Peter chapter three. Husbands, we won't like this. Peter says, husbands, if during your prayer time, you and your wife are at odds, and you haven't made it right. Peter says, stop praying. You and God are off because you and your wife are off. Do you see the vertical and horizontal? We're here, John. How can you claim to love God whom you don't see, vertical, while you hate your brother whom you do see, horizontal? This is all over the Bible. A greedy Christian is an oxymoron. We go on and on and on. And a racially indifferent or a racist Christian is an oxymoron. How can you have been adopted into the family of God by grace through faith, but won't have anything to do with your ethnically other siblings? Do you know, ask any parent how they feel when their kids don't talk to each other and you get a window into God's grief.
golly, I've got 12 minutes and 56, 55 seconds. I'm going to help you with your diversity stuff here. Oh. Where I want to go with this. Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus. Romans 1.16, hear it now. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, not to the Jew only, but to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. If you grew up in church, we quote this evangelistically as well we should, but it is also Paul's church planting manifesto. Read the book of Acts. Whenever Paul walks into a town to plant a church, he always has two questions. Question number one, where's the local synagogue? I want to preach Christ to the Jews. He goes there, um, such places as Athens, Acts 17, he goes to the synagogue. Acts 18, Corinth, he goes to the synagogue. Acts 19, Ephesus, he goes to the synagogue. Preaches Christ to the Jews. Some Jews now become followers of Jesus, but he's not done. Paul doesn't want to just reach part of the city. He wants to reach the whole city. Paul has a gospel greed. So then he goes after leaving the synagogue. Where do the, where do the Gentiles hang out? Acts 17, Athens, they go, Mars Hill. The intellectual elite. He goes up there, doesn't unfold the scroll as he did in the synagogue, points to an altar dedicated to an unknown God. Acts 18, Luke says he was reasoning with Jews and Greeks. Acts 19, Hall of Tyrannus. Now he's got some Jews who come to faith in Christ. Now he's got some Gentiles who come to faith in Christ. And boy, does he have a problem because these two groups hate each other. So what does he do? Well, if he was kind of um, following the church growth American playbook, he'd start two churches. There's one on the north side of town. The Gentiles went on the south side of town for the Jews. Paul says, I'm not doing that. Because you've been reconciled vertically and adopted to the family of God, I'm going to start one church and call you to work out horizontally what God has already accomplished for you vertically, reconciliation. But notice what's driving this. He wants to reach the whole city for Christ. Do I think every church should be multi-ethnic? No, absolutely not. I do think every church should reflect its mission field. I do think you should walk into every church done the right way. You should look around Sunday mornings and go, yep, that's about what this area looks like. Yeah. Dr. Corey Edwards, Jesus-loving black woman, professor of sociology at the Ohio State University. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> Don't even get me started. They're not known for humility, although my bulldogs might have humbled y'all last year. <laughs> anyways, 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 I, I digress. Um, she says the average community that a church sits in is 10 times more diverse than the church and the average schools in a community that a church sits in is 20 times more diverse. I fear 
that a lot of our churches are experiments in voluntary segregation. Paul, you grew up Jewish. You didn't associate with Gentiles. Why go through all this? And I'm just going to be honest with you. This multicultural, multi-ethnic thing, it sounds really good on paper till you actually try to do it. It's a pain. One of the ways we know that, if, if you read Paul's letters, so I hope you're picking up here. The first century norm was multi-ethnic. It's a norm for the church. That's why most of Paul's letters, he writes about stuff like food. Paul, why are you writing about food? If it's a homogenous church, food is not an issue. Eat your kosher meal and be quiet. But when it's a multi-ethnic church, and the Gentile family after church invites the Jewish family over, and, and they decide to barbecue, and it's ribs, I'm not talking North Carolina vinegar-based barbecue. I'm talking real, like Memphis dry rub barbecue. And now the Jews are offended, now we've got a problem. It's a headache. Paul, why do you do this? I got two quick points and I'm done in my last seven minutes and 19 seconds. And Paul says, here's why I do it. Ephesians 2. Because Christ in his death has dismantled the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall, it's a picture of the, of the temple court. If you've ever been to the temple, if you study the temple, you know that the temple had four courts. The outermost court was the court of the Gentiles. In fact, the court of the Gentiles was actually referenced in Matthew 21. That's where Jesus, some of us can remember, cleansed the temple. Why did he cleanse the temple? Well, yes, there were Jewish leaders who were selling their wares. So he is partly reacting to the commercialization of the temple. But I also think, watch it now, that Jesus is also responding to an insidious form of racism. Why? Where are they selling their wares? The only place where Gentiles could worship. It's as if they're saying they shouldn't be here anyways. Lest you think I'm going too far with this, notice what Jesus says as he's cleansing the temple. He says to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Hear it, for all nations. Jesus declares even over his temple, this is not to be a mono-ethnic place. Then from the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, court of the women to the court of the Israelites, court of the Israelites to the court of the priests, each of those were kind of separated by a dividing wall of hostility. In the late 1800s, archaeologists actually found the wall separating the court of the Gentiles from the other courts, and on it were words to this effect, proceed no further upon fear of death. You also need to know that Paul goes to jail for the last time because he's falsely accused of taking his dear friend Trophimus, a Greek, into the forbidden part of the kingdom, of, of, the, of the temple. Paul says, but when Christ died cross served as a sledgehammer, dismantling the dividing wall of hostility. The imagery is poignant. Now people from every nation, tribe, and can rush in together as one. Here's my concern, though. 
If you study American church history, we get an A plus for resurrecting what Christ has already demolished. In the late 1700s, St. George's Methodist in Philadelphia, multi-ethnic church, by the way, late 1700s, black people had to sit in the balcony. True story, black man had the nerve to pray in the whites-only section of the church. Think about that. The whites in the church don't even wait for him to finish praying. They lift him up off his knees and throw him out on the street. Two weeks later, all the black people left the church. They purchase a blacksmith shop that later becomes the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first black denomination in our country. That began a snowball effect where all the historical black denominations were founded because we were rejected. Here's the strongest thing I'll say to you. The only reason why we have a black church at all is because the white church failed to be the church. Paul says, I do all this because Christ has a call on Mercy Church. He would create in himself, watch it now, one new man. Paul's writing in Greek, the Greek word for new, there's two Greek words for new. One Greek word is neos, N-E-O-S. That means new as it relates to time. It's the 2023 Chevy Tahoe. It's the latest MacBook Pro. It's the latest 740 or 777 jet to come off the assembly line. That's neos. Paul doesn't use neos, he uses kainos. K-A-I-N as in Nancy, O-S. K-A-I-N as in Nancy, O-S. Kainos simply means not something new as it relates to time, but it means something so new you don't have a category for it. It really means invention. So whereas neos would speak of um, the 2023 Chevy Tahoe, kainos would be the Model T Ford. Neos would be the latest 777 jet to come off the assembly line. Kainos would be the Wright brothers. I mean, can can you imagine early 1900s? You're you're going down, hey, I'll be back. I'm going to go see these guys, the Wright brothers. And you watch them do their thing and they're up in the sky, early 1900s. And then you come back home and, and, and they ask you, well, tell me about it. And you're fumbling because your mind is blown. I have no category for that. That's the word Paul uses for the coming together of Jews and Gentiles. Mind blown. I'm used to segregation. That's the only paradigm I know. But I went to this church and I stood in the back and I saw slaves and free, men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, Here's my concern, Mercy Church. I don't think the church in general in America today is blowing people's minds. Of course that's the Fox News Church. Here comes our Academy Award lady. She's gonna play music to get me to hurry up. (laughs) 
Of course. That's the Republican church. Of course, that's the Democratic church. Of course, that's the rich church. Of course, that's the poor church. Of course, that's the Korean church. Of course, that's the Mexican church, the black church, the white church. I got one challenge for you as we end. What do we do with this? In 2023, with all our technology, people are still coming to church out of relationships. It's the primary way people come to church. You know what that means? This room reflects your dinner table. I love Spence and I love the vision here. Multi-ethnic, and it's a gospel greed. God is literally bringing the nations to Charlotte. Yes! Sign me up. But if you want to see an Ephesians 2 community, it doesn't really begin with hiring more minority pastors or changing the music or those things could be helpful. It begins with your relationships. When you look through your smartphone, are they pretty much just filled with names of people who look like, act like, think like, and vote like you? How eclectic is your dinner table? So Father, we thank you. We thank you for this great church. Thank you for this great people. We thank you for the gift of great leaders like Pastor Spence and Richard and so many others, Lord God. God, we are pushing up against principalities and powers. Satan has just done a number in our nation. But we declare that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. Father, I believe that unity is not something we have to fight for. It's already been accomplished for us on the cross. We just have to walk in it. We just have to lay claim to what's already ours. And so, Father, we open ourselves up to the voice of your spirit. And we just say yes. However, however you want to prompt us, however you want to push us, we say yes. And finally, Lord Jesus, if heaven's going to be this incredibly diverse, ethnically unified place, Jesus, you taught us to pray, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we say, at mercy, church, as it is in heaven. That's what we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.